Oregon Employment First, supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to work in community jobs. Learn more at iWorkWeSucceed.org. Hi, and welcome to the Oregon Employment First podcast. I'm Angela Yeager with Employment First. Today I have two guests from the Office of Developmental Disability Services, Employment First Initiative. Acacia McGuire-Anderson is the statewide Employment First Coordinator, and Allison Enriquez is an Employment Policy Analyst. They will be discussing how employment policies have shifted during COVID-19 to support providers and also to help keep people safe. Uh, Welcome to the show, Acacia and Allison. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so first of all, um, can you tell me high level some of the big changes that have happened with employment supports for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities since the COVID-19 pandemic started? Sure. So this is Acacia, and I'll jump in, and then Allison, I'll let you fill in whatever I miss. When I think about COVID-19 and the start of the pandemic, I tend to think of it in terms of how things unfolded. Um, When this first started in March and very early April, um, we had what was called baseline. Uh, Through the baseline, we actually were forced early on to stop any group services, um, including day support and employment services, uh, particularly employment path where people might go to learn skills. Um, We did continue to allow one-on-one services, um, but there was limited capacity. Uh, After we moved from baseline, different counties moved into different phases. We had both phase one, which was primarily the metro area, and then phase two. Um, Once a county got to phase two, we allowed some reopening of group services, but providers had to submit a reopening plan. We actually have a reopening worker's guide to help agencies understand what they need to do And it includes having an emergency plan, health and safety guidance, um, sanitation protocols, thinking about numbers of people served, cohorts, physical space. So in order to do any facility services or any group services, providers had to be in phase two and submit a reopening plan. As we continued through phase two, which for a lot of counties um, was quite a a large chunk of time, um, I think frequently from like June to recently here in November. Um, And so we did see some providers return to services and actually in a very short period of time, we reviewed over 80 reopening plans. Um, But then we, as cases went up in Oregon, returned to initially what was called a pause and now what's known as a freeze, um, which may be continuing for a while, very similar to baseline where we had to again stop Uh, group services. Um, We did make some adjustments to that based on provider input, considering, you know, allowing some facility-based one-to-one services just because it's getting colder outside and sometimes being in a community setting with lots of people may be more risky than being in a provider setting. Um, And we also, of course, allowed discovery to start in phase one and actually to continue in baseline or pause or freeze uh, because it is a one-to-one service. So we're doing everything we can at this point to work with providers and um, 
figure out what we can do to support them. And then also individuals who are working because we never stopped job coaching. We never stopped work in essential businesses. Um, so we do have several people um, continue to work and actually lots of people have gone to work during this time. Um, so long as they've been able to have conversation about risk. So I don't know, Allison, if you wanna talk at all about um, some of our informed choice resources yeah, um, something that we put out early on um, with feedback from stakeholders was um, tools and information that a team can use to facilitate a conversation with the person about returning to work or services in the community. Um, you know, really still while encouraging people to stay home and save as much as possible, um, you know, particularly as we get into a closure, a freeze, or return um, to baseline, um, we still want to make sure that people have an opportunity to make an informed choice about using employment and day services in the community. Um, and we have heard from some providers that people are actually um, engaging. Um, people who maybe were reluctant to participate um, before or perhaps engaging a little bit more, uh, maybe through some of the Zoom classes. Um, but as far as like actual returning to um, work and, and services in the community, it's important that people have an opportunity to make an informed choice um, about that, evaluating their options, evaluating the pros and cons of all of those options. And then ultimately, if once they do make an informed choice about either returning to work or other community services, um, working with their team to also develop a plan to mitigate any related risks and a plan for things like wearing masks or social distancing or requesting accommodations um, from their employer. Um, and I think it's important to keep in mind, yeah, we put some of these tools and examples out early on, um, but it's also important for people to um, revisit these plans and think about how it might be changing throughout the pandemic as, as things evolve. Great. Thank you both. And uh, for those listening, the um, we have the ODDS COVID-19 webpage, which has all these resources and a lot more. And uh, that link will be available on the podcast page. So you can look for it there. Need help planning your road to work? Go to roadtowork.oregon.gov and create your customized course to a job using available services and supports. That's roadtowork with the number two.oregon.gov. So, um, Acacia, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how ODDS has helped to support providers um, during the pandemic. Um, you know, other than, of course, all these great resources um, to help support people, are there other supports that ODDS has put in place to help providers? Yeah, so early on, ODDS initially started with some contingency funding. We actually put that out in April before Centers for Medicaid Medicare Service, or CMS, who provides our federal funding, um, had had a chance to um, approve that because we knew providers would need it as they were um, forced to close very quickly um, in response to the pandemic. So we did have contingency funding. Um, after lots of back and forth, they originally had said only 30 days. That was extended to a total of three months, essentially. So we did it in April, and then we did it again um, for July, 
15th to August 15th, and then August 16th to September 15th. So we had three 30-day periods of contingency funding um, for our providers that was issued. Um, we also tried to help connect providers um, to payroll protection loans if it was at all possible and are helping um, make sure that they've got resources around CARES Act funding. I know, Angela, you've helped a lot with sending messages about that. Um, and we're also, of course, staying in the loop on any federal changes or funding that might be available as cases are on the rise, you know, in this winter, not only in Oregon, but across the country. Um, we've also done everything we can to make guidance very clear, um, to have phased guidance so that when it is safe to provide services, providers are able to do that. We early on implemented and are continuing to use what we're calling a flexible billing system. So for instance, people who have lost jobs and need assistance filing and maintaining unemployment benefits, we allow providers to bill employment path for that, which typically wouldn't be part of employment path, but right now it's a big need and a way that providers can assist. We're allowing remote services, um, virtual services, including job coaching, which could be job coaching over the phone, using FaceTime for job coaching. It could be an employment path class that's done over Zoom or done online. So we've allowed those services to continue. Um, we're continuing with technical assistance. Uh, we've got our uh, regional employment specialists in the field working with providers every day to quickly answer questions and provide technical assistance as we can. And we've also had a series of stakeholder meetings to consider different options for how we can continue to support providers as this goes on. Um, some ideas have included considering, you know, enhanced rates if it's at all possible. So we've, of course, um, had conversation with our budget unit around that. Um, considering other ways that providers could bill, for instance, assisting people with technology, learning how to use Zoom, um, which is definitely a DSA or employment path service. So we are constantly trying to work with providers and gather input on what we can do to help support them. So if you're listening to this and have ideas, by all means, send them to us, employment.first at dhsoha.state.or.us. Um, but in all seriousness, we are doing everything we can to continue to support providers and staying in close contact and connection with other states and what they're doing, as well as national advocacy groups to continue to make it clear that our providers need resource right now. So I think that's, you know, that's kind of where we're at. I don't know if there's other ideas, Allison, or other questions, Angela. No, I think that that uh, that answers the question. Unless Allison, you want to add anything? No, yeah, I think that's um, really helpful and and covers it. So, what are some of the big safety measures uh, that ODDS has taken um, during COVID nineteen to protect people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are in employment services? And you mentioned the reopening plans already, but I don't know if you want to expand on that at all. So I'm going to talk just a tiny bit about some of the connections we've done with the local public health authority. And then, Allison, if you'd be ready to chat a little bit about what goes into a reopening plan, that might be helpful. Um, but one of the things that we've done is we have met with uh, local public health authority and Oregon Health Authority um, to have conversation about what our employment services are and what our day support services are 
and helping them to be aware in the event that we have a positive case in one of those settings. Um, also trying to help with any staffing resources in the event that a staff is exposed or has a positive case. So we've been working hard with the local public health authorities um, in those areas and then also just across the state to give them information. So that's one of the things we've done to help keep people safe. Um, and of course, we're also, as I mentioned, limiting group sizes based on phase and trying to put out policy that emphasizes, you know, really one-on-one -on -one or remote or virtual services. Um, so I don't know, Allison, if you want to talk just a tiny bit about what goes into a reopening plan. Yeah. Um, so a reopening plan um, and the requirements are addressed um, in our uh, worker guide for employment and day services during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we, as Acacia mentioned, we're regularly updating um, that worker guide. Um, but the requirements for a reopening plan are included in that. Um, and a reopening plan is needed um, to be reviewed and approved by ODDS. And we can provide some technical assistance um, if needed on those, but it's needed for any um, services that it might be delivered in a group or any services that occur at a provider site, even if it's one-to-one um, -one individualized services at a provider site. And what we're, you know, looking for in those um, uh, includes, you know, making sure that providers are addressing infection control and training and what kind of um, cleaning and sanitation is occurring, um, but then also looking closely at what the provider's plan and strategies are related to mask requirements and um, social distancing, what if it's a group service, um, the uh, cohorts might look like, um, how many people are using services within a given setting, um, what sanitation measures look like for any shared spaces um, like restrooms or kitchens, um, and then sometimes looking at things like separate entry and exit. So those are just some of the examples um, of the things that we are looking for in a reopening plan. And we also have um, around... I guess midstream of reviewing our uh, providers reopening plans found that there was a need and request to have a template tool. Um, so that can be found online and can help ease and facilitate uh, completing those plans and getting them reviewed and submitted. Um, and then also wanted to touch on quickly that early on we were looking at an uh, already existing requirement that providers have their emergency plans in place and emergency plans um, need to address a uh, pandemic. Um, and so <clears throat> some of those things were already existing and providers were working hard to make sure that they also reflected and addressed things related to the COVID-19 pandemic in particular. So the things, again, like infection control practices and training for staff, um, and then another key piece that, you know, we're all needing to just be mindful of is continuing to be aware of direction and guidance from federal, state, and local public health officials um, as it continues to evolve um, and just staying up to date and current on, on all of that guidance. 
Yeah, and that's a good point, Allison, that we're always monitoring that and that, you know, we try to align or we are aligning our guidance, you know, with the the other um, the other uh, guidance that is out there from the state and federal government. Have you heard about the Employment Outcome System? Doesn't sound exciting, I know, but it is. The Employment Outcome System, or EOS website, puts you in control. Go to eos.oregon.gov and you can look at info and outcomes for agencies providing employment services to people with developmental disabilities in Oregon. You can look up providers in your county and compare their numbers on employment services. So, Acacia, I think this question is for you, but Allison, feel free to jump in also. What have we learned about what to do when there is a a COVID-positive case in a group setting? Yeah, so this is something that unfortunately, right before we were in pause or freeze, Um, we had had some experience with where we would have an individual test positive who had been in a group. Um, Like I mentioned before, our groups are much smaller um, and they're cohorted. So just a a same group of individuals would participate in service together with the same staff. Um, That being said, we have learned that it's incredibly important to meet with the local public health authority as early as we can. Um, Local public health authority tends to think of our DSA and employment settings as work sites, um, and they have special work site investigators, and they also have special residential investigators or what they call congregate care. Um, So it's really important in a DSA or employment setting to pull together the work site investigator and the residential or congregate care investigator. Um, because we've got some overlap in those services. People who go to those services tend to return to group homes or foster care homes, so there's a risk there. Um, And it's also incredibly important that we're able to explain that during um, a conversation with local public health authority, because the guidance they might typically give a work site could be different in this instance. So we've learned that that's important and we at ODDS are happy to be part of those conversations and happy to help make connections. Uh, We've also learned that it's incredibly important that there's communication more so than ever between an employment or day support provider and a residential provider. Um, Our day support and employment providers do screenings before people would come in to a setting. Um, However, it's also important that if somebody leaves a residential home and could have been exposed at home or might have any kind of symptoms of COVID-19, that a screening might not catch, such as nausea, if somebody can't self-report, it's very important to get that information before the person gets to work. Um, Additionally, communicating back to the home. If somebody ends up positive, even if it's not the individual who resides in that home, if they were part of that cohorted group, making sure that any residential or foster care providers or families, of course, are aware that there could have been an exposure and that testing might make sense. Um, We've also found that even with cohorts and all of our safety measures, um, especially in smaller communities, there's a chance um, that there could still be a risk of exposure to anybody who had been in that you know, building or facility. And so at this point, we've updated our worker guide to end services in a setting if there's a positive staff or individual or a presumptive staff or individual until we can have that risk assessment and talk to local public health authority and you know, talk to the provider and figure out what risk there might be. 
Um, of course, once we've been able to do that, if it's safe to resume services, we want to get folks returned to services, especially employment, um, individuals count on paychecks just like everybody does. And of course, those who are working, you know, are counting on their employees. So we do take added precautions um, than a typical work site, but we will work with providers to help people get back to work as, as quickly as possible. Um, so as we go forward and um, once we move past free, uh, freeze back to phase one and phase two, um, hopefully we will be able to better address any potential positive or presumptive cases um, as we go forward. Great, thank you, Keisha. I think that was um, really helpful information for people to keep in, in mind. And so just to wrap up, I wanna ask both of you if there are additional resources that people should be looking for um, as they're going on to the ODDS COVID-19 webpage, um, what are some helpful resources um, that you would recommend? So I'll start just by saying, I know not everybody looks at our COVID-19 page. Maybe they bookmarked something or downloaded something, but I would just strongly encourage, even if you use a browser of your choice and put in COVID-19, Oregon, ODDS, it'll take you straight to our page. And if you look at that page, there's a section for providers, there's a section for individuals and families. Um, and it's really important to keep up with any changing policies if you're on the provider side, particularly our reporting policies. It's called scenarios. It's right at the top of the page. So I would highlight that. So if you're an agency, you know how to report. We've also got exposure notifications and letter templates that'll tell you exactly who to notify and how to do that. So I'd highly recommend looking at that. Um, we try not to change it often, but it does change. So if for any reason you think there could be a positive case or a presumptive case, that would be the first place to go. Um, I'd also wanna just highlight our resources for individuals and families. Um, we've got several Powtoons or short videos that explain, you know, stay homes, save lives. We've got Powtoons that talk about returning to work and things to consider if you're thinking about, I, you know, I, I wasn't working for a while because of COVID, but I'd like to find a new job or return. Or some people weren't working before COVID, but they really do want to work now. And so I think that those can be really important resources. Um, Allison, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about some of the informed choice or um, life course tools we've adapted for individuals to help them think about returning to work or starting work. Yeah, um, and I guess too, kind of going back to the tool that I'd mentioned before is just that guide or tool on making a plan for work and community activities. Um, and that can really be used by um, anyone, you know, a family member might find it interesting or helpful in order to um, speak with a loved one about some of the potential risks um, related to um, <clears throat> COVID-19. Um, and then embedded within that tool, we did, yeah, point to other resources that are out there and examples, and one being um, the life course tool that a lot of our um, stakeholders have found very useful, helpful, easy to use in having a conversation about what it is that you want, what it is that you don't want, and how to, how to get there, but then also how to make a plan to address any um, related risks. And so so 
the life course folks put out a really nice, helpful example um, that addresses even um, things that are specific or scenario specific um, to COVID-19. Um, and a link for that is embedded within our tool for making a plan for work and community activities. Great. And all, all the life course tools um, for those who go to the ODDS COVID-19 webpage are under resources um, for individuals and families. Um, the webpage is broken up into three larger sections. Uh, one is in, uh, resources for case management entities, one for providers, and one for individuals and families. And then within those sections, there's resources, um, policy transmittals, and other information. So um, so thank you uh, to Acacia and Allison. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? I would just like to thank you know everybody who is working through this with us. I appreciate you know, self-advocates and individuals still going to work, um, their families supporting them, their residential providers supporting them, and of course, our employment and DSA providers are working as hard as they can to adjust and keep services available. So I really just appreciate all of the hard work that's happening in the field around us right now. Yes, we're all pulling together and, uh, and, and doing the best we can. We really appreciate it. So thank you very much, Acacia. Thank you, Acacia uh, and Allison, for being on the Employment First podcast. Uh, and as always, we thank you for listening and we'll um, uh, hear, hear from you all again next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.